Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. We will continue with our look at these chapters. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. We will spend most of our time on verse 2. But at least it's a whole verse. It won't be just a phrase as we will see in a few weeks. Please listen as I read the word of the living God. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray once again. Father, as we have just remembered your grace in a very tangible way, and we have recalled the great and vast mercies you have poured out upon us, help us now to respond by having a greater zeal than we've ever had to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to give you ourselves in response. And teach us by your Spirit, teach us by your Word, and teach us what it means to have renewed minds and transformed minds. I pray this for the glory and the honor and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So it's been a pretty heavy week in the news, huh? A lot of big stuff going on, a lot of heavy stuff, a lot of serious stuff, and some things that are quite concerning. But there was one rather trivial, somewhat exciting event that took place. Some of you care a lot about it, about it. some of you couldn't care less, but Apple revealed their, their new products on, on Tuesday, their new iPhone, their Apple Watch, their Apple Pay system, and all that stuff, and whether you love them or hate them or don't really care about them, there's no denying Apple is a wildly successful technology company. They're the most profitable company in the nation. And their success lies largely as a result of their late founder, Steve Jobs, and his creative approach to design and product development and such. You, you just can't dismiss that, even if you're an Android guy. I'll pray for you. <laughs> you, you can't help but acknowledge it. And his approach was different from the rest of, of his uh, day. It, it, as shocking as this sounds, and for the kids, they may not really believe this, but there was a time when it was thought that computers would be limited to the realm of business. One of the greatest companies, the largest companies uh, 20 years ago was IBM, International Business Machines, because the thought was computers are going to be great for commerce, not for consumers, not for, uh, for people at home. And Steve Jobs came along and said, no way. We're going to have a computer in every home, many of them. And he saw things differently from the rest. And, and when they exploded onto the scenes at Apple, they had this as their slogan, think different. All those colors look kind of out of place now, but uh, that was big then. It was, a, it was cool then. And, and my wife always says, differently. Should we think differently? And some of you are nodding in agreement, yes. But, but see, they thought different. And so Steve Jobs came along with the, the, uh, the graphical interface. Some of you remember the old DOS systems. You had to enter everything via the keyboard. And Steve Jobs says, no, 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 no. There's a much better way. And, and he developed the graphical interface and the mouse. Now, he didn't invent the mouse, but he brought it to everyday use in the computer to now just move your hand around and click and click and click. Just think how much different our lives would be if we didn't use the mouse and the graphical interface. If everything had to be... I'd never use a computer. 
And then came the, the iMac. Do you remember those things? The, the big, translucent, bubbly-looking things in all the colors? It seems almost hideous now when you look back. But at the time, they were really cool. At least some people thought so. And eventually we got to the iPod, which changed forever the way we would listen to music. And then the iPhone, which changed the way forever that we would do everything except talk on the phone. <laughs> and the iPad, and now there's the Apple Watch and all these things. There's no denying Apple has had a major impact on everyday life of so many people and they were cutting edge, and they continue to be cutting edge. And if you, if you listen to Apple people talk, they really, they do think different. They, they have three things, I think, that kind of set them apart. At least this is what they want us to believe sets them apart. They have a laser focus on what they're working on. Uh, they pride themselves on the things they say no to, even more than the things they say yes to. They're focused on what they can do and do well. And the second thing is they strive for excellence. They want their products to be absolutely perfect. Now, they don't always achieve that. If you use iCloud, you know what I'm talking about. But they strive, at least, and they work to make their products perfect. The third thing is they couldn't care less what people think. They don't do test marketing. They don't create a product and give it to a handful of people and say, give us your feedback. They are so convinced they can figure out what you want and that they are master advertisers and they'll make you want it. And so you'll buy it every year, buy the new one. That they don't care. They, they make products that they want to use is what they say. I know that's trivial compared to a lot of the other things going on, but I, I want to kind of hijack. I want to steal those slogans for a minute because I think they capture the heart of what Paul's getting at here in these two verses of chapter 12. He wants us to have a laser focus on righteousness, on holiness, on pursuing giving our bodies as living sacrifices and being holy and pleasing to God. He wants us to pursue excellence. Remember, we talked last week, God doesn't accept our second best. He wants the best we have to offer. And he doesn't want us to care what anybody else thinks. He doesn't want us to look at the world and say, how are they evaluating us? How are people receiving us? That's not the point. You pursue godliness regardless of what anybody thinks about you. He wants us to think different or differently from the world. That's what he says here in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world or this age. He's, he's assuming that the age is trying to form us into something, and it is. They have a mold. They have, they have a pattern, and they want everybody to fit into their mold, into their pattern, to squeeze us in. So if the president and CEO of Chick-fil-A decides one day to just make a statement that he holds to traditional marriage between a man and a woman. The world converges upon him, tries to create protests against the Chick-fil-A restaurants because it doesn't fit their mold. Or if another business owner doesn't want to follow the, the restrictions and the restraints and the constraints of Obamacare, and provide abortifacient uh, drugs to their people. Everybody wants to raise up their arms and say, you can't do that. You've got to follow our pattern. They want to squeeze us into the mold. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't be conformed. Don't care about what they want you to be. Be different from the world. The world cannot see reality as it really is. The world, it's not that they don't, it's that they cannot see reality as, they, as it really is. They can't see the world as God created it and designed it. We are told this back in chapter 1. If you remember when we were there, most of us were much younger then. In chapter 1, verse 28... Paul says, just as they, speaking of, of unbelievers, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And when we see the word depraved, we tend to think of wicked and immoral and evil because that's what the word depraved means. 
But something caught my attention this week that I hadn't seen before. The word, the Greek word that lies behind this word depraved, it's evil, wicked, is not really the intent, although it certainly is where it leads. The word that lies behind this means more literally worthless or unqualified. So they refuse to worship God. God hands them over to a worthless or unqualified mind, which raises the question, unqualified for what? Worthless to do what? Well, as it goes on to explain, to please God. The mind of the world is incapable now of understanding how to please God. It's unqualified. It's worthless to decide this is what is good, this is what is bad. And Paul, therefore, is saying, so don't be conformed to them because they don't know what it is. This doesn't mean that people are unintelligent at all. There are brilliantly minded, very high IQ people in the world, far smarter than I will ever be, but they can't see reality and godliness and truth the way God designed it to be because they're disqualified. That's what he's getting at here. And so he says, don't be, be squeezed into their mold in chapter 12. This divergence, this, this contrast between worldly thinking and godly thinking is assumed all through your Bible, especially in the New Testament. In Luke 22, you may remember this conversation. Uh, we, just, we just read a part of it, or I quoted a part of it, where Jesus is with the disciples and he's giving them the Lord's Supper. And in Luke's version, he continues to say, I will not drink this again with you. I will not eat this again with you until I do it in the kingdom of God, until we're in the kingdom. He says it two or three times, until the kingdom. And the disciples are sitting around going, hey, the kingdom's almost here. This is great. This is exciting. And they're convinced that now that the king has come and the kingdom is here, Jesus is just going to lead them into battle and they're going to take over the Romans and throw off all their enemies and they're going to rule. That's what we do humanly when we think about God's kingdom. Great, let's, let's rule, let's take over. And Jesus says, not so fast. It's not going to be that kind of kingdom. He says, Peter, you're awfully excited about this. You think you're going to be all the stuff, huh? Well, guess what? Before the rooster crows three times tomorrow, you're going to run scared and deny me. Deny that you even know me. Don't get so excited about this rule thing because it's not quite what you think. He goes on and says, before when I sent you out by twos throughout the people of Israel, I sent you out and I told you don't take any, any money, don't take any food, don't take any supplies, don't even take extra shoes, you will be provided for it. He says, how did that turn out for you? And they all said, great, we, it, was, it was wonderful. They received us and they honored us and they blessed us. And Jesus said, well, now when I send you out, it's going to be a different story. You better take some extra money and some extra clothes and even get a, a sword because there's going to be persecution at every turn. The world is not going to like it as my kingdom is being built. It's in that context that a couple of the disciples began to debate amongst themselves as to which one of them was the greatest in the kingdom. Doesn't that just blow your mind? They're sitting here with Jesus, and they're thinking, now, are, are, are you going to be at the right hand of him, or am I going to? Are you going to be the really great one? Or am I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm tougher than you. I'm stronger than you. I'm, I'm smarter than you, John, James. You know, it's always mentioned Peter, James, and John. It's got to be Peter. I mean, he's always the one that speaks up first. He's always the one that puts his foot in the mouth. But at least he steps forward. It's got to be him. And they're debating this. And this is the second time in Luke's gospel that they had this debate about who was going to be greatest. And Jesus, I just wish I could see the expression on his face. He looks at him and says, gentlemen, you're acting worldly. You are thinking worldly. That's how the Gentile leaders act. They lord it over those under their authority. They, they come down with a, with a hard and iron fist. When the, when the Gentile dictators take over, they want everybody to know they're in charge. And, and if they decide to invade a little country like Crimea, they're going to do it. And if they want to spread out past that to Ukraine... 
They're going to do it because they're in power. Jesus says, that's not how my servants should act in leadership. You should be a servant to all. That's how you lead. You become like a child. Place yourself under those. Not that there's not real authority, but your purpose is not to flex your muscle, but it is to serve. He said, the leaders of this world want to be considered benefactors. After they conquer you, they want you to say, oh, thank you, sir, for all the wonderful blessings you've given. I get three measly meals a day or whatever. He said, no, no, you don't want to be looked at as benefactors. You're just servants. He says, look, I am, I am the Lord. I am the Messiah. I am the one reclining at the table in the position of honor. And look what I've just done. I've just washed your feet. I'm greater than you, he says, but I've come to serve. Worldly thinking says, be strong and powerful. Godly thinking says, I just want to serve you. I just want to bless you. That's why I lead. There's another passage that describes the difference between worldly and heavenly thinking. It's a pretty, pretty sober one. It's in James. Let me just read this to you. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness, uh, gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. Earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom, is bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. He goes on and says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. It's chaos as people act worldly, and they're bitter and jealous. But, he says, the wisdom from above is first pure. That is laser-focused. That's what pure means. It's simple, unmixed. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, there's a chapter break here, but there's no break in the original. It just goes on. It goes on to this familiar passage. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Do you want to know where marriage problems come from? Do you want to know where relationship problems come from? James is about to tell us, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among people? It's this, your pleasures that wage war in your members, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Now, he's not talking about actually killing people. He's saying with your words, with your attitudes, you, you're so angry, you kill people with, the, with your thoughts. Why? Because you don't get what you want. If you're in conflict with somebody, it's because you're not getting what you want. That's not typically how we think about things. It's not how we typically go about conflict resolution is saying to the person, you know, you're just being a big baby here. He says, you are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You have not because you ask not, and you ask not to receive, but you ask with wrong motives. I'm sorry, you ask and do not receive because you ask the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, so you, it's all about you. You're asking for things, but you're, you're just asking for yourself because you want to be happy and feel good. You adulterers, this is strong language from James to the church. You adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Did you know that was the context of that phrase? You, you all know that, right? You can't be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. Because if you make yourself a friend of the world, you're not a friend of God and so forth. Did you know the context was quarreling and fighting with one another? He says that comes from worldly wisdom, earthly, demonic wisdom, where you're seeking after your own interests. But from above, it's peaceful and pure and creates uh, a, a peace among people. And I could go on. There are plenty of other places, Ephesians 4 and such, this, this diversion or diversity between what the world thinks and what godly thinking looks like. It's all over the place. And Paul says in Romans 12 here, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So back in chapter 1, I believe that Paul gave us a list of worldly thinking. 
And in chapter 12 and 13 and 14, he's going to give us sort of the contrast to that. There's a lot of parallels I'm going to try to show you. They're not all along the way exact parallels, but it's pretty close, and I think he's doing this on purpose. In chapter 1, he gives us that unqualified, disqualified, worthless mindset of the unbeliever. And in chapter 6, the middle section there, he says, you're no longer that. You died with Christ. You've been raised anew in Christ by the Holy Spirit to live a new life, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, as slaves to righteousness. And in chapters 12, 13, and 14, especially, he's going to show us what that looks like. So we're going to see this over and over and over again in the upcoming months. So I want to go back and look at these parallels between chapter 1 and chapters 12 through 14. So let's put up the first slide here. In chapter 1, we see that as God has given mankind over, man worships the creator, not the cre- uh, uh, sorry, the creature, not the creator. You remember that? He says it over and over again. They bow down before things made in the image of birds and animals. They worship the creature. Now, we don't do that anymore in 21st century America. We are far too sophisticated to make little birdies and bow down before them and say, oh, that's my God. But the culture is no less idolatrous. What is humanism if it's not worship of the creature? What is the entire pursuit of me, 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 if not idolatry and worshiping the creature? Except in this case, instead of being the the piece of rock we're worshiping, we get to worship ourselves. That's who we are, and, and God gives them over, and the What follows on that then is that people use their bodies for unnatural, wicked behavior. Again, right out of Romans chapter 1, he gave them over and they began to pursue unnatural things. And of course, the specific uh, mention there is homosexuality. He calls it unnatural sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it is unnatural. And the fact that our culture not only uh, accepts this, but pursues it, shows the mindset of the world in which we live. And it's going to get worse. We must, as Christians, take our heads out of the sand and not be shocked as sexual licentiousness just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Polygamy will be next. It's pretty close if you saw the Utah decision a couple weeks ago. And then incest. How can we say that's wrong? And, and where does it stop? It can't stop anywhere. Because once you declare that we're not going to follow the biblical standard anymore, everything's fair game, and that's where the culture is heading. We, we can't be surprised by that. We, we must not re- react in shock and, and awe at that because it, it's exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. Men and women use their bodies for unnatural things. And then he says this depraved or this worthless, futile, foolish mind that the world has. Well, in chapter 12, as we talk about the renewed, regenerated Christian mind, we have these instead. We don't worship the creature, we worship God. We saw last week, you present yourselves to God in worship. And we use our bodies as living sacrifices to him. We seek to honor him. We seek to be holy and acceptable because we want to please him. And thirdly, we have these renewed, transformed minds. Now, we're going to give you the whole list from chapter one. It's pretty ugly. This is the world's mold that they want to shape us into. Unrighteousness and wickedness. Greed and envy, murder, strife and deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, loving evil. That's the world in which we live. And it doesn't take very long to see that, right? It, it's, it's commonplace. If we don't really believe the world is like this, just take a quick glance at pop culture. Popular musicians and artists and the movies that are being made and such, and it's just right down the list of those kinds of things. And that's pop culture, popular culture. That's what's popular. Why is it popular? Because that's what the world wants. Now, I want to go through some of these individually and show their counterpart in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So on the left-hand side there, we see unrighteousness and wickedness, but Paul's going to tell us, or he has told us in chapter 12, 
We're to present our bodies in holiness as holy sacrifices and goodness, a good, pleasing sacrifice to God, not like the world and their wickedness, but this is how a renewed mind pursues things. Greed, envy, murder, strife. A renewed mind, a a Christian mind, is pursuing generosity and faithfulness and brotherly love. Instead of trying to kill people, or instead of being envious of them, greedy, we're generous, we're committed, we're faithful, we love them. The world is about deceitfulness, but we're going to see in the next sections that we are to be sincere in our love. No hypocrisy here, no deceit here, but we really do love people. Malice, gossip, slander, and the counterpart is, no, 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 we're going to build each other up with our words. We're going to honor one another instead of doing evil to them. Next slide. We're told that the world, they hate God, but we don't. Are diligent in serving the Lord. We rejoice in hope. We don't turn away from God in hatred. We, we rejoice in His goodness and, and hope. We persevere through trials because we trust Him and we love Him. And we are devoted to praying to Him because we know He's our help. Insolent. That's a word we don't use every day, but it means to be boldly disrespectful and arrogant and boastful. If you don't think the world is like this, just turn on the football games this afternoon. And certainly the arrogance and the boastfulness come shining through. If the guy gains, you know, one first down, he's going to think he's the greatest show on earth. Like, get over yourself, buddy. Christians are to be hospitable. And instead of cursing, we bless with our words. We don't boast with them. We we bless with our words. I'm fascinated by this other one, inventors of evil. If that doesn't describe our culture. How many new ways can they come up with something to do that's wicked? It's like every good invention, everything that's a great blessing, like computers, people are going to find a way to use it for ungodliness. But Christians hate what is evil and cling to what is good. This is what a renewed mind does. We pursue those things that are good, not the evil going on. Disobedient to parents, we covered this last week. Now, it's not stated in chapters 12 to 13, but obviously the implication there is that a renewed mind is obedient to parents, Gabriel. (laughs) And everybody else who has parents in the room. He says the worldly thinking, the depraved thinking is without understanding and again, it's, it's implied that we seek truth. We do know what is right and true and good. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. In chapters 12 through 14, we're going to see we pursue unity. We interact with the lowly and associate with the lowly. We're humble and patient when wronged. That's what a renewed mind looks like. And finally, it's implied that the unrenewed mind is defiant to authority, but as Christians, we are taught in chapter 13 to submit to authority, even the United States governmental authority, which we will see when we get there. On the left side, finally there, we see they love evil. As Christians, we love others, and we love what is good. That's the renewed mind that we're going to see in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So he says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be like the left hands of those slides, but be like this. Be conformed, not to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, in the Greek language, we don't have that nice play on words, but it fits. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Don't be formed together with the world, but have your your minds transformed beyond what the world brings. Now, it's an interesting phrase, be transformed, because it's a command, it's imperative, right? You, you see that in the language, be, you, you be transformed, but it's in the passive voice. That means you're receiving the action. 
So do you see how that's kind of odd? You have to do this, but you have to be the recipient of the action. It's kind of like Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. As you think that through, it's a command, you be filled, but if the Spirit doesn't do the filling, you can't be filled. So you think, wait a minute, am I the one acting or am I being acted upon? And the answer is yes. He doesn't say transform yourselves, but you do have a role to play in it. You and I, we have to pursue this transformation, and yet if God is not the one who actually brings about the transformation, it'll never take place. And so we have a role, but God has a role. We pursue it. He transforms us. He changes us. And he does this. He, he keeps us from the world and does this through transforming us by a new mind, a new way of thinking, as we've been talking about. So what exactly is that? How do we pursue this renewed mind? Probably most people here today would say, well, we study the Word of God, right? We have Bible memorization plans. We we have our Bible through the, through the year plans. We have Bible studies. We, we pursue the Bible, and, and that, that's not a bad answer, the good answer. But I don't think it's primarily what Paul has in mind. For this reason, at least the New Testament had been written yet. He and James and John and Peter are still in the process of writing it. And they didn't have their iPhones or Galaxy, whatever those other things are. You didn't have these devices where you could have, you know, a hundred different versions of the Bible readily at hand. They might go to church on the weekend and hear someone read from the scrolls and, and pass around the letters, but they couldn't take their own personal copy home with them. So it can't be only reading the Bible. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not downplaying that in the least. I'm just saying it's got to be more than just that. I, and I think it is. I think as we look at the whole book of Romans as he's been teaching, the renewal comes primarily through the work of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in chapter 8. The mind of the flesh is hostile toward God. It can't please God. It's the mind of the Spirit that's in the spiritual realm, this new realm that he's worked in us. Now we can please God. Now we can pursue righteousness. Now, it's a different Greek word, as I'm sure Dwight has pointed out or will point out in his class and in his upcoming book. But it's, it's still a similar context. It's, it, uh, content, it's the idea of what you're thinking about, what's going on on the inside. As that is regenerated and filled with the Spirit and motivated by the Spirit, now we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now we can pursue righteousness. Now we can be different from the world and be like Christ. And so certainly the Spirit uses the Word of God, and we should feed ourselves the Word of God and give the Spirit all these tools that are part of the Word of God, but just going through the motions of Bible study is not going to get you a renewed mind. Anything you can just check off the list and say, I did that, is not going to get you a renewed mind. We do that sometimes, don't we? We wake up and have our devotionals. We think, check, I'm good. Had my time with God, and, and I'm good. And we go about our day. It's very possible, and probably we have all experienced this to some degree, it is very impossible to go through those motions and live the rest of the day in a way that certainly doesn't betray a, a renewed mind. It's got to be more than simply going through those motions. It's got to be the Spirit of God transforming the way we think. Our interpretation of events our concerns, our passions, our pursuits, our reasoning, what matters to us, all those things have to be transformed, and it's got to be done by the Spirit of God. Let me see if I can show you from one other passage why this has got to be the Spirit's work above all else. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, here's what Paul says. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, that's not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. You see the same idea? There's the contrast, the worldly thinking. Our wisdom, he says, is not worldly thinking. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not crucify the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. 
So all the mysteries of Christ and all the blessings of Christ, he's given us through his spirit. He's revealed it through his spirit. Now, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the Bible. But the Jews didn't get it simply by studying the scriptures. It had to come from the spirit, opening their hearts and minds to see the truth. The spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I love that imagery. Like God's mind is, is as deep as the ocean, bigger and, and deeper, and the Spirit plunges all the way down and searches it and knows the mind of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Your Spirit does the same thing. Now, it may not be as deep as God's, but you've got some depth and your Spirit goes down and minds your thinking as well. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, not in words taught through human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. You see, again, they're unqualified. They're, they're worthless. The, the, the world can't receive these things. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The Spirit has to do this. But he who is spiritual, I believe that's capital S, is the Spirit of God works. He appraises all things, yet he's appraised by no one. Quote, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And here's the last phrase, last verse, but we have the mind of Christ. How do we get the mind of Christ? Through God's Spirit who reveals Him to us. So this renewal of our minds that we're after is not just something we go through this step and that step and that step and we get it. We have to have the Spirit of God come in and transform. And so we need to seek Him. We need to pursue the Spirit of God. We need to pray. We need to lay our thoughts before Him and say, Spirit of God, transform my thinking. Make me different. Help me to think different. Help me not to follow in the pattern of this world and not follow the course of this world and not think like all those things in the left-hand column, but help me think like on the right-hand column, by your Spirit's power, by your work, show me how to do this. We've got to pray for it. We've got to seek it and pursue it. So that even as you are pondering these things, even if you don't have a scripture readily available, the Spirit of God can reveal to you how to please God. Now, a lot of times He is going to draw to your mind scripture, no doubt. But it's the Spirit that does this. So then back in chapter 12, verse 2, He gives us the purpose of all this. Where does it all end up? So that you may prove what the will of God is. And then he describes God's will. It's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. That's God's will. You can prove God's will. Think about that. You as a Christian can prove God's will. Now, when we think of God's will, we almost always go straight to the big decisions of life, right? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I become a missionary? And I certainly believe the Lord leads us and guides us in those things, and he does reveal, reveal his will in those things. But in the context here, I think the will of God that he's describing is, is a little bit less uh, exciting than that. He's talking about doing what pleases God. That's his will. It's like 1 Thessalonians 4, which I'm sure Dan covered, although he went so fast through 1 Thessalonians that he may not have had much time to spend on it. He's not even here today, and I'm picking on him. But there, if you remember in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to be different. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be righteous. And Paul here is saying, you can know what pleases God. You can know what He expects of you. You can have that transformed way of thinking if you'll be transformed by His Spirit and have a renewed mind. And that's the end result. So as you're weighing options, as you're weighing this course of action over that one, 
Seek the Spirit of God to change your thinking into conforming to Him rather than the world. We shouldn't react like the world to things. This morning in our frack talks, we were talking about how we react sometimes to suffering. How does the world react to suffering? How does the world react when things don't go their way, when they don't like what's been going on? They get angry. They get depressed. God can't have anything to do with this in their mind because obviously God just wants me to be happy. Did you see the clip of the female pastor in Texas, co-pastor of a church of, what, 45,000 people? had the gall to get up in front of all those people and say, when you come to worship God, you're not really doing it for God, you're doing it for you. What God really wants for you is just for you to be happy. It's Mrs. Osteen, I forget her first name. She learned that from her husband. You take the world's view of things and slap a, a little God on it, and you've got Joel Osteen's entire ministry. That's worldly thinking. But renewed thinking says, yeah, this hurts. Doesn't make me happy. I would really like to have a better job. I would really like it if my spouse didn't treat me this way. I would really like it if this and this and this, but I trust God. I love God. I know God is working all things together for my good, and I'm going to serve Him faithfully anyway, knowing that somehow or other, he is conforming me into the image of Christ through this. And as much as it hurts, he's doing it for my good. That's renewed thinking to hard situations. I think I've, I remember in, in the book of Acts we covered this, but as Bob prayed for our brothers and sisters in the other parts of the world that are being literally beheaded and and killed and persecuted. It's awful, and we should pray for them. And I certainly join with him in praying that, that God would protect them, and yet we do have to be careful not go too far down the path of worldly-mindedness with our prayers toward, for them. Because the apostolic example is pray that they would be bold, even if it means they give their life for the cause of Christ. So pray for their protection, pray for their release, pray for an end to the ISIS regime for sure. Pray for our president now that he's getting involved. But pray for them that they will persevere in truth and faithfulness to the cause of Christ no matter what. Because Jesus says over and over again, it's the one who perseveres to the end that will be saved. We don't wish destruction on them and we pray that God protects us from it, but if it comes, our biggest prayer for each other needs to be, keep us faithful to the end, Lord, because you're worthy. That's what a renewed mind looks like as opposed to a worldly mind that says, it's all about self-preservation. How can I protect myself? How can I get out of this? If I can deny Christ and walk away, then I'll do it. There, there, there are so many application points, and, and Paul's going to give us a bunch of them as we go through. So I'll just kind of wrap it up with this. At the heart, I'm convinced of worldly thinking that we should not be conformed to is simply reacting to things selfishly. And that, that's the heart of our sin. It's, it's about me. So that if I'm driving down the road, I'm going west on Woodman, and I've got like four car lengths between me and the guy in front of me, and somebody's on the, on the side street ready to pull in and goes, ah, four car lengths, I can get in there. And he whips in front of me, and I slam on my brakes, and I swerve, and I look in my rear view mirror, and I can see to Kansas, I can see the gateway arch in St. Louis. There's nobody behind me. If he had waited three seconds... He could have got out and pushed the car out of the lane and he wouldn't have inconvenienced me. But I, right, and inside, I got all kinds of things going off in, in my mind that if you were sitting there with me, I would never say out loud. 
but God hears them, right? That's what the world says. It's, it's an inconvenience to me. How dare you pull out in front of me? But that's not renewed thinking. Renewed thinking says, come on in. That's okay. I wasn't going anywhere important anyway. I can wait. Please, get in. Or when your little brother is taking too long in the bathroom because he's trying to see how long he can hold his breath underwater and solve the Rubik's Cube. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He came in yesterday and said, Dad, can I go up and get in the bathtub and see if I can hold my breath and do the Rubik's Cube? I said, no. So last night he comes back and said, Dad, I just got out of the bathtub. I had to take my Saturday night bath. I did two sides. <laughs> and I don't want to falsely accuse here, but I did hear at least one of my daughters not very happy about how long little brother was taking in the bathroom. But the renewed mind, Sophia Grace, <laughs> says, go ahead, solve all six sides. And I do hope you don't drown in the meantime. <laughs> the renewed mind is patient, self-denying. How can I be a blessing to other people? That's why I'm here. I'm here to serve other people. It's not about me. So that when we're not treated the way we like to be treated by our family, our spouses, or our kids, we don't throw a temper tantrum. That's worldly thinking. I clean the bathrooms and nobody even noticed. I slave over the kitchen all day long and don't even get so much as a thank you. I work hard all week and I just want to come home and veg for a little while and all they want is yep, 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 yep and give me stuff to do and complain about this not being fixed or that being fixed. I've heard such stories. None of this goes on in my house. My wife doesn't complain about anything. But I've heard that in some homes this kind of thing goes on. That's just selfish, worldly thinking. It's about me. I'm not getting what I want. Things aren't happening the way I want it. They're not happening as fast as I want. I'm inconvenienced. I'm troubled. Oh, come on. But renewed thinking says, it's not about me. We don't throw temper tantrums and yell and scream and slam doors and call people names and think violent, murderous thoughts in our mind toward people that we say we love. We're patient. We're kind. Because that's what Jesus did. On that night in Luke 22, Peter did exactly what Jesus said he would do. Three times. Oh, he started off the day saying, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. I'm going to give my life for you. That's how committed I am to you. Soldiers show up and say, are you with him? Don't know the guy. Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' friends? I've never even talked to the man. Leave me alone. One scripture says he cursed. It's not, not a profane word. That's not the point. He didn't use bad words. He actually called down a curse on these people for even pretending to think that he's associated with Jesus. And what do the other guys do? Well, one of them was the betrayer, right? He's the one that led the Roman soldiers straight to Jesus, and the rest of them ran for their lives. If anybody ever had the right to react with strong, harsh words. It was Jesus, and he said, I forgive you. Peter, after you do this, when you turn, I've got, I've got work for you. I've got a ministry for you. And he sent them all out to change the world with the gospel. No pouting, no whining, no crying, no boo-hooing. He took it because his purpose was not 
to please himself, but to serve us. That's the standard. That's the model. That is the mind of Christ that we have and that the Holy Spirit is conforming us into. And so my question for you this morning is, how you doing? How you doing with this? How's your mindset? Is it Christ-like? Or are there areas in your life when you look and you think, yeah, I'm pretty selfish there. I'm pretty short-tempered there. I'm pretty much concerned with what I get out of this in that scenario. And I, I want to do something here that we don't always do, but it just seems right. I just want to ask you to, to bow your heads. And you listen for the voice of the Spirit. Not my voice, not your own voice, but listen for the voice of the Spirit. And ask Him to point out those areas of your life your responses, of your actions that he needs to renew. Let's just take a moment or two, get alone with God and ask him to do this. for you, for myself, as well as for my brothers and sisters here, and ask you to renew our minds. Lord, I'm sure there are places in all of us where we're still too much inclined toward the world in our thinking, which leads to our behaving. Father, don't leave us there. Change us. Give us the humility to be honest with you and to seek your power of transformation so that we may be righteous and pleasing to you and know your will. Father, I praise you this morning. I give you thanks that there is hope. You do not leave us where we are. You will not leave us where we are. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ dwells within us and the same power that raised him from the dead will transform our minds and give us victory and give us selflessness and give us peace. He will. We do not have to stay where we are. We do not, we are not slaves to unrighteousness. Father, would you do this today in our hearts and our minds? I believe you will and I ask you to. Father, if there's someone here today that needs to come forward to after the service and pray with an elder and just ask them to pray for their spiritual weakness, give them the boldness to do so. And make us a church that doesn't look like the world in how we interact with other people and with circumstances. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's together that we would have the mind of Christ.